In the last session, I introduced the subject of dating, uh, not just the uh, dates for the composition of the New Testament as a whole, but for the Gospels specifically, and why people think uh, that is important. I'm now going to begin with the book of Acts. I'm uh, looking at when the Gospels were composed, in fact, by first turning to Acts. Uh, because Acts is um, inextricably linked with the Gospel of Luke. The author has written the book of Acts for the same person for whom he wrote the third Gospel, the, the Gospel of Luke. They are both written to Theophilus, who is named as the recipient in both Luke 1.3 and then in Acts 1.1. In print, these two books are frequently referred to as Luke-Acts, Luke-Acts. A second reason I like beginning with Acts um, uh, is that there are events in it that can be assigned uh, reasonably definite dates. A third reason is that since Acts obviously follows Luke in chronological order, we know that all three synoptic, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were composed even earlier than Acts. If the book of Acts was completed by 70 CE, uh, as I believe, then Luke, Matthew, and Mark, regardless of the order in which they may have been written, were all composed prior to 70 CE. Robinson dates the Gospels and the book of Acts as follows. He dates uh, Acts as having been composed between 57 and 62 CE, Luke between 57 and 60, Mark between 45 and 60, Matthew between 40 and 60, and uh, the Gospel of John uh, between 40 and 65 or 65 plus. So I begin then with, with Luke. Many scholars agree that the book of Acts, uh, uh, begin with Luke, uh, Luke's book of, uh, of Acts. Many scholars agree uh, that the book of Acts was most likely composed or completed in 62 CE. Here's why. First, Acts 18.12, in naming Galileo, the proconsul of uh, Achaia, before whom Paul appeared on trial, establishes Paul's presence in Corinth between January 52 and January 53, and um, then 2 Corinthians 11.32, in identifying uh, Aretas as the king of Achaia, in, uh, of Damascus at the time of Paul's conversion, provides a concrete time range for Paul's conversion as uh, having occurred between 33 and 40 CE when Aretas died. I think this becomes even more powerful when coupled with the fact that the author of Acts occasionally employs the pronoun we when recounting the travels of Paul and his companions. Scholars call these portions of Acts the we passages. Acts, therefore, 
appears to have been written contemporaneously with Paul. That is, to have been written by a companion uh, and associate of Paul sometime prior to 63 or 64 CE. Second, the book of Acts doesn't record the Jewish war or the fall of Jerusalem, um, 66 to 70. In fact, neither the book of Acts nor any of the Gospels refer to the Jewish revolt against the Romans of 66 to 70 CE. Uh, uh, none of them refer to the horrible siege of Jerusalem or the catastrophic fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This argues strongly for a composition date prior to those cataclysmic events of August 70 CE. Now, as noted in previous podcasts, I am well aware of the argument that since the Gospels contain prophecies or predictions of the destruction of the temple, uh, that the fall of Jerusalem is, in fact, mentioned, not directly or historically, as a completed event, but as a prophecy. Jesus, um, the argument goes, didn't actually predict the consequences of the Jewish revolt. Indeed, since the phenomenon of prophecy does not exist, he could not have predicted the fall of Jerusalem. Rather, so this theory goes, when the Gospels were eventually written sometime after 70 CE, the writers, reins, uh, the, the writers inserted this, these uh, prophecies. As I've also previously noted, it is known for a fact that others, like the self-proclaimed Messiah Jesus, the son of uh, Ananias, made the same prediction Jesus of Nazareth made uh, and made it in the autumn of 62 before either the revolt was underway or the fall of Jerusalem had occurred. So I agree entirely with the eminent liberal scholar John A.T. Robinson, who wrote this in his book, Redating the New Testament. These prophecies of Jesus afford no ground for supposing that they were composed or even written up after the event. Rather, the contrary. In themselves, they provide no evidence for a later dating. Indeed, they provide a presumption from uh, the argument of unfulfilled prophecy of not simply a date before the fall of the city in 70, but before the flight of Christians to Pilla prior to the beginning of the war in 66 CE. Third, Acts does not mention the martyrdom of James, which was in 62 CE. The Jewish historian Josephus records that the Sanhedrin had James stoned to death. Later, Christian authors add that the form of stoning by which James was killed was by being thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then, since he was still alive, beaten to death with fuller clubs. But Acts 
Strangely, if written after the event, says nothing of the sad and significant tragedy for the Christian community. Fourth, Acts presents theological disputes that would only have been issues before A.D. 70, not after. For instance, Acts 15 centers on the question of whether Gentiles should be circumcised. But after 70 CE, the number of Jewish Christians was decimated, while the number of Gentile Christians with little interest in the rite of circumcision grew exponentially. Indeed, the Gospels are thoroughly Jewish, but Judaism and Christianity departed radically after 70. Fifth, Acts clearly represents a moment in time when Christians enjoyed the legal protection uh, uh, under Judaism. Uh, before the Jewish war, the, the war with Rome, uh, between 66 and 70, Judaism was a legal relig religion, uh, had been for some time, uh, with special allowances and exemptions uh, granted by Rome. And Christians, as long as they were thought to be, as long as they were considered to be just another Jewish sect, were safe under the umbrella of Judaism. But after the revolt, the Romans revoked Jewish privileges and therefore also those of Christians. Six, the book of Acts mentions nothing of the letters of Paul, exactly the opposite of what we would expect if Acts were written much later than Paul's epistles and after they had become well-known and were circulated. Seventh, the book of Acts doesn't record Emperor Nero's persecution of the Christians in Rome, 64. Nero uh, began a horrific persecution of Christians after the great fire in Rome, crucifying Christians whom he blamed for the fire and burning them alive by the thousands. But yet again, Luke mentions nothing of this in his book. Luke recorded other persecutions of Christians. I'm thinking, of course, of Acts 8.1 and 11.19, but not the one under Nero in 64. I find it unimaginable that if Acts were written any time after 64, after the Great Fire of Rome and the subsequent brutalization of Christians, uh, that it would not say a word about it. Eighth, the book of Acts doesn't record the death of Paul. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest, living in his own rented quarters in Rome, waiting out the final disposition of his case, but free to openly teach those who came to him and to confer with church leaders. Adolf Harnack, the brilliant German theologian and historian, 
came to the conclusion that what seems like a rather strange and improbable ending to the book of Acts to many actually makes sense if we understand Acts as having been written shortly before or after Paul's time of relative freedom, uh, after that uh, time of relative freedom ended and he was removed to the praetorium to begin the process of his trial, probably in 62. <clears throat> there are a number of sources outside the Bible that are helpful in establishing the historicity and chronology of Scripture, uh, other than Acts, um, which, of course, is not outside the Bible. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, written around 93 to 94 CE, uh, contains two references to Jesus of Nazareth. The first states that Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And the second refers to how uh, Annas, the high, um, high priest, seized a moment of opportunity to condemn James, the brother of Christ, to death by stoning. Josephus also refers to the arrest and the execution of John the Baptist. In 1873, uh, this is a, another uh, extra-biblical source, in 1873, a young Greek Orthodox scholar and bishop was searching through ancient manuscripts in a monastery, uh, a library in Constantinople, Istanbul. He turned over the leaf of an ancient codex, and as he read the first sentence, sentence he realized that he was looking at a text that scholars, because of its being quoted by previous scholars centuries earlier, knew had once existed, but had been lost for a long, long time. It was what is known as the Didache. Its name is taken from the first line of the book, which reads the teaching of the Lord given to the Gentiles by the Twelve Apostles. Didache is the Greek word for the teaching. The book itself is a sort of simple manual for new Christians. It has instructions on prayer, worship, baptism, justice, and caring for the poor. In relation to this reflection, it is significant that the Didache quotes the Gospels, particularly Matthew. For example, it uses as Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. The, the subtitle of um, Thomas O'Laughlin's excellent book uh, is uh, the Didache, A Window on the Earliest Christians. And, and that provides, I think, a good indication of why this little book is so highly uh, valued. It is a window on the earliest Christians. The consensus across a wide range of scholars is that it was written uh, anywhere from 40 to 70 CE. However, uh, 
Larry Hurtado, for whom I have immense respect as a precise, careful, and fair scholar, thought its contents represented a very early period in the beginning of the church in which later elements from around 170 had been incorporated. The implications of the Didache um, for Christian origins are, as I say, significant. If written after the Gospels, it suggests an early date for their composition. If written prior to the Gospels, it indicates a basic stability and understanding, uh, coherence and continuity uh, to the Christian faith from the time of the first Easter and even uh, earlier in some ways. And if it synthesizes the two historical periods, it still does the same, still works in the same way. A group of early Christian leaders and writers, often referred to as the Apost uh, Apostolic Fathers, since they formed the, the next generation linked to the Apostles and earliest followers of Jesus, uh, offer still additional confirmation of the essential continuity of the Christian religion. I'm thinking, of course, primarily of Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. All four were bishops, and, uh, and uh, in the end, all four were martyrs for the faith in their old age. They each had not only, uh, not only um, known uh, individual first-generation Christians, but the Apostle John, as well as, as um, like the Apostle John, as well as others, um, Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, uh, all contain numerous quotations and paraphrases from the book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, Timothy, and uh, Polycarp even quotes from 2 Timothy three times. Papias apparently didn't so much quote the Gospels as he gathered the words of Jesus from people who had heard them, and then he interpreted Jesus' sayings in um, his book, The Exposition of the Sayings of the Lord. I conclude this session with a kind of thought experiment which itself begins with a question. Uh, hold with me on this. Did Shakespeare write all those plays and sonnets attributed to him? Documentation of Shakespeare's life is sparse. Several signatures, records of his marriage to Anne Hathaway, the birth of their children, a three-page will, and some business papers unrelated to writing. That's pretty much it. Nothing has been found documenting the uh, actual composition of the more than 36 plays and 154 sonnets attributed to Shakespeare. The question frequently and seriously raised is, how could a person of such an unsophisticated background whose education ended at 
uh, age 14, come to have such wealth of insight, such wit and wisdom, such comprehension of complex legal and political matters, and such easy familiarity with the ways of the English court. Henry James, Sigmund Freud, Mark Twain, Helen Keller, and Charlie Chaplin, to name just five among uh, many very famous and literate skeptics, have voiced their doubts about Shakespearean authorship. Some critics have proposed that Francis Bacon, the great essayist or the playwright Christopher Marlowe, may have been the actual authors. Shakespeare's supporters point to the printed copies of his plays and sonnets with his name on them, to theater records and to comments by commentaries uh, by uh, contemporaries uh, like Ben Jonson and John Webster. But does that really prove anything? Might not someone else, someone with an elite education from uh, Oxford or Cambridge, someone of more sophisticated world experience, someone highly trained in the ways of literary discipline, might not someone from the aristocracy who did not want to be known in that highly class-conscious society for work considered below his or her station? Might not such a person have employed Shakespeare as his or her front man? A number of scholars argue in response that there is no evidence of Shakespeare's authorship being questioned prior to the 19th century, but others counter that there are early 18th century satirical and allegorical tracts and essays which seem to question his authorship. Now, here are three takeaways I have from my little experiment. One, there is no proposition that cannot be debated not because evidence for or against a given issue is evenly distributed, but because beyond the physical sciences, it's difficult to prove anything beyond reasonable doubt. The intellectually and emotionally mature thinker is one who recognizes that while definitive answers to life's questions may not be possible, Decisions and commitments must still be made, and that we can be confident in our beliefs and decisions without being presumptuous or closed-minded. Two, being confident in my beliefs frequently requires that I employ, as suggested in my opening podcast, ways of knowing that transcend formal logic or scientific verification alone, ways which have been demonstrated to be perfectly valid. Three, setting aside the problem of addiction, which by definition limits and constricts freedom of choice, I choose what I will give my attention to. I personally have only a passing interest in things that don't much matter. In the end, I'm far more interested in the beauty and in the insights 
of Shakespearean prose and poetry, the way they inform my mind and speak to my heart, then by who actually wrote them or whether they were performed at the Globe or some other London theatre. Four, there comes a point in the spiritual life, and this is my, my final takeaway, there comes a point in the spiritual life in which academic questions that are entertaining become distractions and need to be relinquished. In my next podcast, I will explore the question of whether the Gospels involve eyewitness testimony.